thank you very much to Kimberly for donating to the podcast on Patreon this week. High five, Kimberly. It's people like you that keep this show going and every dollar counts. If any of you enjoy this show, if any of you have what it takes to donate even just a few bucks a month, you can head over to my website, kyle.surf, and support it on Patreon. Even just the equivalent of a cup of coffee really does help keep this show going. Also, big thank you, as always, to Santa Cruz Medicinals for supporting each and every one of these podcasts. Santa Cruz Medicinals makes potent CBD. They make CBD coconut oil, CBD MCT oil. Uh, I use it every single day. I use it for the scar that I have on my wrist after I snapped my arm. Um, I just dig in there with the CBD cocoa oil, and uh, it helps with scar healing as well as... um, just feels real good. So I use that uh, every night. And if you want to get some for 10% off, you can head over to scmedicinals.com and type in the code name KYLE10, all caps, and get some CBD at a discount. KYLE10, you can click the link below this episode to check it out. This episode of the podcast is with Lindsay Locke. Lindsay, among many things, uh, has worked in the health and fitness industry for the better part of the last decade. With an undergraduate degree from UC Santa Cruz in legal studies, Lindsay has long since been interested in criminal justice and inequities in the justice system. Currently receiving her master's in counseling psychology from John F. Kennedy University, Lindsay has turned her efforts towards approaching addiction counseling and counseling through a holistic lens and eliminating the stigma that surrounds the topic. Through fitness, Lindsay has helped those that have abandoned their health, either through trauma, lifestyle choices, or addiction, to get back to their bodies and begin to heal from the inside out. Lindsay is also a close friend of mine. I met her because she listens to this podcast, and one day she just reached out. She lives in Santa Cruz, and... uh, We had coffee together, and she is a very curious, very engaged, tuned in, turned on, just solid person. Um, And then when I broke my arm about half a year ago, um, she took me on to basically be my, um, my rehab uh, center after my insurance ran out and I couldn't use my physical therapy anymore. So she teaches CrossFit and she was just said, Hey, come in, um, we'll modify the workouts for you and we're going to get you strong again. And for anyone who's had an injury before, you know how important it is to have these people in your life that just send you a text in the morning and say, Hey, get out of bed. Let's get after it. Um, it really can make the difference between falling into depression and not. And I felt that way. Um, I'm someone who needs exercise every single day. I need to, I need to do a workout that kicks my ass pretty much every single day um, to ward off just clunky thoughts and negative thoughts and just we all know what it is. It's a shitty mindset. I think that exercise is the single most important thing that I do for myself every single day. Um, and to have Lindsay reach out and say, hey, let's get get you back on trap during that time in my life meant a huge amount. Um, 
and she is um, just as I said, she's she's very curious, very open minded, and knows her shit both in the addiction realm as well as the um, exercise and physical fitness realm. So um, I was blown away by this conversation, and I hope that you get a ton out of it. And without further ado, please welcome to the show, Lindsay Locke. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. And away we go. Um, so did you get interested in studying addiction before you were interested in podcasts or after? Before. Before. Yeah. So I was actually, um, I've never shared this on a podcast before. I was raised by a single mother alcoholic. And so a lot of my life I was kind of raised thinking, you know, alcohol is horrible. Drugs are terrible. This is a disease that has riddled my family, that has riddled my town, and wanted to run as far away from it as possible. Um, so I ran to Santa Cruz. Where did you grow up? Uh, up by Yosemite. Yeah, Sonora. Um, and so ran down to here where clearly we have no drug problems in of Santa course. Cruz, right? And it started, I started to share my story and share my experiences. And I realized how cathartic that was for me. And realized how much growth and how much learning was actually coming out of this very shadowy side of me. And so it's actually funny. My undergrad is in pre-law. I thought I would go and write legislation and do research to help kind of reform drug policy in the way that we think about drugs and alcohol now. Um, And through kind of the, I guess, chain of what it would take to become a lawyer, I realized, oh, my gosh, I don't want to do this. I actually want to help people, and a lot of times it's just manipulating the words to fit your argument in law. Not always. Like, for the lawyers that are out there, awesome. I'm glad you're doing it because someone's got to, and clearly I couldn't. But um, I decided that I wanted to give back to a community that is so often overlooked and is so often shamed and stigmatized, and, and I did it myself, right? I know that nobody's perfect, and I totally believed in total abstinence and this war on drugs and everything we're fed. But then I would also have to fall back on like, but I still really love my mom, you know? So what, why is it so polar? How can I learn more? And, um, just recently about a year and a half ago, started my master's in counseling psychology was at the time uh, that I started school, I'd been working in drug and alcohol rehabilitation. And so between my studies and what I was learning at the rehab facility, it's just created a lot of questions and a lot of exploration into this topic. Mm. What were some of those questions? Oh, man. Um, I think some of them were just kind of like, why? Why does this happen? Because so often we get, you know, it's a disease model. And my entire life when I would, you know, mom would relapse or something would happen, she would tell me, Lindsay, it's a disease you know, if I had cancer, would you love me any less? If this happened, would you, you know, would you blame me? 
And of course not, right? You would never be like, oh, mom, like, you have cancer. cancer? What the hell, you know? But something never hit quite right with me with that. Because I was like, well, if you were to ask someone with cancer, like, hey, just never touch this substance again in your life and you'll be cancer free. My guess is that most people would say, okay, I'll never touch it again. So I knew there was something more to it than just it's a disease. And I think that looking and people totally believe that it is a disease and that's fine. This is just my take on things. I think that saying it's a disease inherently takes your power away. And that's part of the 12 steps, right? Admitting that you're powerless against drugs or alcohol. Um, I kind of take the stance of whether it's a choice or it's biological or these different factors. If you take back responsibility for your life, you know, you, now you've also taken back your power. So we can go from this powerless model to one of like, I make my choices I can only make my choices in the moment. That's why meditation and mindfulness, I think, is so huge. And we can get into that later. But in this moment, I can choose to be powerful. And I can choose to be bigger or better or more powerful than drugs or alcohol. Yeah. It gives you agency. Absolutely. And that's the goal, right? Through any sort of therapy, whether it's alcohol and drug related or not, is to restore someone's autonomy and to do it without you as their lifeguard. Right. Without you having to buoy them to the top, they're capable of creating this agency themselves. Wow. Yeah. That's profound. Um, And I do think is um, what gives you meaning as well. Um, I think that when you can take radical responsibility for your actions and you have them like, I'll, I'll just give you um, an example that I've been mulling over quite often recently. So um, I've told this story a million times on this podcast before, but uh, a few months ago, I snapped my wrist kite surfing. And um, I was learning how to kite surf down in Costa Rica. There was an instructor who on the second day put me on a kite that was way too big for me and for the conditions. Um, I launched it on the beach, got thrown 20 feet across and snapped my wrist. And that night I posted this photo on Instagram of my snapped wrist and I kind of blamed the instructor. Like, why did he put me on this kite? And in the moment I knew, I kind of knew I shouldn't have gone along with it, but I went along with it anyway. And I posted the photo and there was this kind of tsunami of like, yeah, fuck that guy. And it made me feel good for a moment. Like, yeah, totally. Um, but then that feel good moment kind of passed and, um, I don't think I took full agency over that experience. So just recently I was listening to a podcast, um, about how taking radical responsibility for your actions can give you meaning because, because it gives you agency. So I kind of flipped that scenario and said, you know what, actually, that was totally my doing. I knew that I shouldn't have gone on that kite and I'm going to take full responsibility for the situation. And immediately flipping that thought made me feel better about it. Absolutely. It was, it was such a strange and powerful little mental flip. Anyway, that was, that's my, my own story about it. But um, I think that there's the... the um, danger in in that argument is that people then don't take into account environmental factors, right? So, 
for example, there's uh, Purdue Pharmaceutical, which overprescribes oxy to a nation, and we're now uh, left with this huge opioid epidemic, right? So they're obviously p- partly culpable for this. So you're not absolving them of any responsibility. But I think just for our own uh, mental well-being, taking as much agency back as possible can help make us happier. Absolutely. And and feeding into things like, you know, Purdue Pharma producing Oxycontin and, and these highly addictive supplements, right? Um, on the flip side of that, we're also in this totally backwards systematic problem where the second your doctor finds out that you are abusing your prescription, they are required by law to cut you off in that moment, right? And for those of you that don't know what opiate withdrawal is like, don't Google it because it's terrifying, but it's not, it's not easy. It's not pretty. It's, it's really scary. And doctors all of a sudden cut you off because if they don't, they're considered like a drug dealer, Mm. right? And they're prescribing, um, outside of the laws of ethics. So now we've got this system where, okay, we've got tons of people addicted and the one thing that's, and I'm not saying that using opiates is good by any means, but you've got a medically pure opiate that you've been prescribed, whether or not you're abusing. Now it's been cut off. Where are you going to go? Right? Your body is still chemically dependent on this drug. Sure, you can withdraw. You can cold turkey and you can withdraw and it's painful and it's terrible, but who's going to do that? Right? So that's when we turn to heroin. That's when we turn to these street drugs that are basically keeping people from getting dope sick. I don't know, you know, we can get into why people are addicts. And I, my own belief is that a lot of that is rooted in trauma. But there are people too that, you know, I worked with tons of clients that are like, I never had a drug problem. And then I had my shoulder surgery and was hooked on opiates. So is that to argue that there's chemical hooks in these drugs that totally, you know, are addictive and you can't get over it? Sure, that's an argument. But grandma who fell and broke her hip and had a hip replacement and then was put on morphine and was put on all these other medical drugs, right, didn't come out of the hospital and immediately go to the corner and try to score. So where in this system is there a disconnect? And I think a lot of it has to come down to the set and setting and the container and the context in which you're using the drugs, right? And I mean, I know that you've talked about it on this podcast before, but the Rat Park experiences or excuse me, experiments are such a testament to this. Um, For listeners who aren't aware, there was, I think his name's Alexander. Um, Yes. Yeah. Did Bruce Alexander. Bruce Alexander. Yes. Did rat park experiments that basically, if you put a rat in a cage and put two different waters, one that was just regular water and one that is laced with either cocaine or heroin, the, the rat is almost always going to compulsively use the drug water until they overdose right? Not always the overdose, but pretty frequently. So that's kind of where the war on drugs started, right? Like you will use drugs, you will get hooked, you will overdose, you will die, period. And then he's like, well, wait a minute. You know, what if we, this, this cage gave the rat absolutely zero purpose. So what if we created rat park where, rat park where the rats can play and have sex and be around other rats and create everything that would give this rat's life a purpose and Almost all of the rats never used the drugs, the drug water. And if they did, it was recreational, 
right? None of the drugs, none of the rats overdosed. And it like was every once in a while, I'll do a little cocaine bender, <laughs> have an orgy. Sounds good. Sounds but good. Yeah, we're not going to. And I'm that. being a rat That's and funny. I'm loving it. How do they, what, what do you mean by recreational, though? Like they would use. They would. It's just funny for me to be like, yeah, yeah, recreationally, like every once in a while, I'll have a big night. <laughs> right. They just, I think. Get more together than, with Tina the rat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tina, man. You see, you see the tail on Tina? <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I think more than anything, they just never saw that they were compulsively using it. Right. There was no need to continue to go back to this spigot to the point that they overdose and die. And so where in our society, I guess it's easier to say we're not in our society, but where in our society are we creating places that people feel genuine connection? You know, I think that that's one of the reasons podcasts are so big for me is because like I'm finding a connection every time I'm in my car. Right. Or the gym. You and I can talk about that, too. But um, being a CrossFit coach, it's like I see those connections every single day. And with the life that we live and how often we're isolated from so many things that matter to us, I have one hour to be potentially the best hour of someone's day. And so I think that, you know, through my work at the rehab center and the work that I do, And the gym, my goal is just to provide a space and a platform where people can connect again. Right. So when did you start working on uh, addiction? You started sharing your own story with your mom. And then what was uh, the next chapter? Yeah. So um, I didn't start working in addiction until about two years ago. Um, I had gone to tons of meetings with my mom. I had, you know, the more I talked about my story, granted, I've never struggled with addiction, so I can't sit here and tell anybody they know exactly what it's like, but I do know what it's like to be caught in the crossfires of it, and I do know what it's like to care so much and love someone so deeply and feel so helpless over what they've got going on. And the more I shared my story, which was very much my own therapy, um, it started coming out that everyone I knew either had struggled with it in the past or their uncle or their brother or their son or someone near and dear to them had. And so I, you know, I think that through shame and stigma, so many of us are conditioned not to talk about it. Yeah, we don't. But I I think it would be such a powerful, um, almost like social art project to to walk into a coffee shop and say, all right, everyone, raise your hand if you or someone you know struggles with addiction. Everyone's hand raised. Everyone, yeah. I'm probably up in the 90% percentile. Absolutely. So yeah, I I agree that getting this kind of stuff out in the open is a huge step. And I might argue that that 10% that didn't raise their hand might not have been raising their hand out of shame Mm. or out of the fact that they weren't aware of the family dynamic or what was happening because we've all got to keep up with the Joneses. That it was like, oh, that's just like Uncle Billy. He's he's just like that. And it's like, no, Uncle Billy's nodding off into the gravy right now. Like he's (laughs) he's not doing well, (laughs) you know? So I think that it it affects all of us. I mean, and even if it's not your family, go drive through downtown Santa Cruz and say that somehow addiction doesn't, I guess, take over your experience in some way, shape or form. Right. It's everywhere. And so I think the more that we can start talking about it and the more that it, it again, it goes back to giving us that autonomy again. It comes back to. I'm not letting this narrative that has been so negative and dark and ugly create my reality. I'm going to be able to take back my power and live the life that I want to live. So through meeting people in the gym that had struggled with addiction, 
having obviously addiction run in my family and then having this huge affinity for it, I was like, I've got to go do this. Um, at the time, I wasn't super happy with the job that I was working. And I met with a friend and was just kind of, you know, bouncing ideas off him and didn't know what to do. Didn't if I'd know if I wanted to stay with the company or not. And he was like, OK, well, Lindsay, all things aside, if you could do anything right now, what would it be? And I was like, well, don't laugh at me. I go into my whole story. Right. And I was like, so my goal is to like one day have either a treatment center or a practice where I can work with addicts and family members of addicts and approach addiction differently and do it through a holistic lens. You know, meet the person where they're at. Don't say that they're a bad person for using drugs or alcohol. You know, like I, it'd be pretty tough to find someone in your life who hasn't used drugs or alcohol, right? And why is it that one person can use them and one person can't, you know, and, and be able to teach family members and those affected by addiction, um, you know, better nutrition, how to move their body, these things that, again, restore purpose and things that we can do instead of just saying, hey, drugs and alcohol are bad, don't touch them. And by the way, you're powerless. And by the way, you're always going to struggle with this saying, no, you're super powerful. And here's a ton of other strengths and confidence building things that we can focus on instead of just continuing to tear you down. And my buddy goes, Lindsay, there is a rehab center. It's just south of Santa Cruz. They're totally, he calls it woo-woo hippie shit. They're totally into the woo-woo hippie shit that you're into. You should go talk to them. Yeah, when someone says it's woo-woo hippie shit, that's usually a little blinking light that there's something awesome to it. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, like, the the world will be saved by us picking out the best of the woo-woo hippie shit. Absolutely. And is there some woo-woo hippie shit that I've done that I've left and I've been like, Okay, can check it off the list. Yeah, we'll shit. never do it again. I don't again. think those those rocks were very charged. Actually, <laughs> yeah. those were those were just rocks. Damn I've, it! <laughs> I've been rubbing these crystals on my face, yeah. and nothing's happened. Yeah, but but turmeric, that shit. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, woo. Let me tell you about my yeah, buddy turmeric. Bathe in turmeric. That was some woo hippie shit. Hey, there you go. And now my knee doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I go and I talk to this this agency, and at the time, a lot of my background was in fitness. It still is in fitness. And they were in the midst of wanting to build a gym at their facility and offer CrossFit and yoga five days a week for all the clients there. So within like two days of having this conversation with my buddy at a coffee shop, to meeting with the CEO and CFO of this company, I was hired and brought on as their fitness director at this rehab facility um, and did that for almost two years. And it was awesome. You know, I went from more of a conventional gym setting, just insofar as it was a CrossFit gym that was open to the public and making healthy people healthier to now going in to a facility where most, I'd say 95% of the people there had never done CrossFit, had never done any sort of high intensity training. You were getting people from all walks of life, right? That had spent the last however many years numbing their body and wanting nothing to do with it. And just the furthest end of the sickness side of the spectrum you could get and taking those sick people and bringing them back to health in 90 days. And it was 
the most incredible experience. You know, I learned more about myself as an individual. I learned more about myself as a coach, more about really what I was talking about earlier, meeting people where they're at. Because everyone else who had walked into a CrossFit gym before was there to do CrossFit. I was like, cool, teach me, I'm here. Almost everyone I was working with there was like, fuck CrossFit. My bones hurt. I don't want to do this. And you're not going to tell me what to do. So it was so crazy to watch people go from that point in their life to the day of graduation where they're now, you know, squatting more than their body weight and their family doesn't recognize them. And the gym is the biggest outlet and what they look forward to the most in their day. You know, we're starting to repattern those unhealthy habits and giving them something to substitute it with. And a lot of my job after that was helping people who are graduating the program find gyms in their area. And the answer might not always be CrossFit. I'm not going to say it is. I'm a big advocate of it because that's <laughs> it's my drug of choice, right? But um, any way that people could move their body. I was like, I don't care if you hate me for the next 90 days, but we build you a 90-day baseline of healthy movement, then sure, go kickbox or go do Orange Theory or go do any of these other things once you graduate, but continue this best hour of your day after you leave. Continue this new structure and this new pattern once you're out of the confines of, of our little rehabil- <clears throat> excuse me, rehabilitation center. How would you get them to do that first workout? Well, it was kind of... Like, what were your psychological tricks that you would use to make them not just give up immediately? Yeah, so um, a lot of it was my language. Um, Some people, I mean, everyone's motivated differently. We all know that, right? Some people like to be yelled at and be like, pick the bar up, like, ah, fuck, go, you know? Am I going to coach someone like that? Sure, if I notice that's what motivates them. But my client who's... 60 years old and has been drinking a fifth of vodka every day before they came to the center, I'm probably not going to talk to that person like that, right? I'm probably not even going to have that person do a full CrossFit workout. If you come to the gym and you can move to the extent in which you feel good about it, cool. So a lot of times before I would get people into the gym, um, I would have one-on-one sessions with them and I would explain them that. Like, look, I'm not here to tell you how to do it, what to do, or anything like that. Yeah, am I going to make sure that your mechanics look good and you're not going to hurt yourself? Absolutely. But I don't want you to come to the gym and meet my expectations. You know, maybe the reason you're here is because you've been trying to meet too many expectations that you felt you couldn't. So I want you to come to the gym and get the best workout that you think is possible. I want you to leave having met your own expectations. And so just changing the way people think about it and reframing it and using positive self-talk. You know, I can look at the board and be like, fuck, that's going to suck. And I'm going to hate it. And this is going to be terrible. And it's like, okay, if you're telling yourself you're going to hate it and it's going to be terrible. Yeah. You're probably going to get halfway through the workout and you're going to hate it and it's going to be terrible. And that's not to say that I would tell my athletes to go into it and be like, it's going to be rainbows and butterflies and this is all going to be awesome. But it was like, I can try it. And I can't tell you how many times I had clients come up to me after their first workout and be like, why do I feel this good? You know, they had never felt a dopamine dump or an endorphin rush the way that they did in the gym without drugs or alcohol. And so, so many people, again, going back to creating agency, it was like, wow, I have the power to create this by moving my body. It was pretty, pretty epic. I like even what you said about calling them athletes. 
Oh, yeah. Like what that does to someone who's probably never been called an athlete in their life. Or someone that, you know, look at the culture we live in. How often does someone tell you good job? How often does somebody validate you and mean it? And like, you know, the first time I have a client that has been stepping on a 12 inch box, jumps on a 12 inch box and then jumps on a 20 inch box or whatever it might be like celebrate that like your kid just tied their shoes for the first time and people get stoked and it's infectious people around the gym are doing the same thing you know like you've been in the gym with me how often have you seen when someone gets a new skill or someone snatches more than they've ever snatched before the whole gym goes silent and watches and it's not this weird like I'm on stage it's like everyone here cares about me so much and when I stand this up I'm gonna feel so good one thing that I found insane about CrossFit in a, in a good way, because I had never, I, I don't want to say I'd never done CrossFit, but when I snapped my arm and came to you and said, Hey, I, I need to do uh, CrossFit because uh, my insurance won't cover any more physical therapy sessions. Um, and you took me on. Um, one thing that was really fun is it took two weeks or less before I noticed major changes in my body. Absolutely. So, and, and that's not true for every other type of workout. Like you notice these these physical shifts so rapidly that I think that that can is one of the, one of the most attractive aspects to CrossFit and gets people really addicted to it. Absolutely, and that's something that I noticed a lot with the clients too. Was you know our program was ninety days, which is a lot different than most programs are thirty, and mm. and that's fine. There's a place for them. You know, you mention insurance sometimes. 30 days is all your insurance will cover. If your insurance will cover a 90 day program, I really urge you to do it. Um, but just because there's so much healing and there's so much learning to do. Um, for most people that I've talked to, they've explained to me that after 30 days, they're just coming out of the fog, right? So imagine the way you felt after two weeks of CrossFit, sans drugs and alcohol that you've been using for the last 20 years. And people have a really hard time kind of grasping some of the coursework that we were having clients do, but all of a sudden they're using their body and they're getting stronger and their body's changing and the color in their face is coming back and these different things. The external body started to really mirror what was happening internally. This health that was happening from the inside out now is tangible and is manifesting in people's reality and they can really start to grasp just how big this change is becoming. Right. And would, what were some of the other therapies and, and sorry, what, what is this spot called again? Elevated addiction services. And was there a lot of child trauma work there as well? You mentioned that, that you think a, a big root of addiction is childhood. Yeah. So that's, again, that's my own thoughts. Um, a lot of Gabor Mate's work, revolves around that but more recently something that I've been looking into is um, called ACEs adverse childhood adversity and basically what adverse childhood adverse sorry what did I say adverse childhood adversity my bad adverse childhood experiences okay um so basically what this is based on is there is a study and I'm not going to remember the doctor maybe Kyle can look this up and put it in the show notes but it was a Kaiser study in San Diego, where 
the doctor <clears throat> was noticing a big majority of his clients were coming in for obesity, right? And we're getting surgeries to help with weight loss. And upon doing the surgeries, over 80% of the patients would come back having regained the weight. And instead of saying, hey, junk food's bad and why are you touching it and all these things, this doctor started kind of asking deeper questions like, hey, when was the when do you remember your eating getting out of control? And one client said when I was 11 and it was like, "Okay, well, then what was different in your life when you were 11 than when you were nine, eight, seven or 10? Right. And it was the first time this person had ever said that was when I was molested by my grandfather. And so that's the first time she's ever admitted it to a medical professional. It's the first time she's ever spoken these words out loud. And it registered as this huge thing of like, oh my gosh, you had this, this trauma. Of course, you know, something was going to happen. Something was going to give. And they asked, you know, what triggered you to start, start eating the way you're eating after your surgery? And she said, oh, well, I had, and like no malicious intent. I had been hit on by a guy at a bar and I gained the weight back because it was my sense of security. I had this blanket around me now that I didn't feel attractive. I didn't feel good in my own skin. So I could be, you know, quote unquote, repulsive to other people. So the same doctor took the next few years and dedicated a bunch of his research to asking 10 questions that were all about childhood traumas or adverse childhood experiences. And they ranged from um, verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, to did you see substance use in your home? Do your parents or loved one um, struggle with, you know, drinking too much or any of these things, right? And what they find is that if you have a score of six or more ACEs, you are 3,000 times more likely to have suicidal ideation and 4,000 times more likely to develop an addiction of some sort. And so it's kind of cool. I mean, it's, it's so sad to see that, right? But it's kind of cool because it's the first time we've now medicalized mental health and taken the stigma away from it and said, of course you're having, you know, you're at risk for heart disease and you're at risk for depression and you, of course you have an addiction because your ACE score is eight. You know, when we watch these things increase, there's now answers to why it's happening. It doesn't have to be, oh, I'm powerless and it runs in my family. It's like, well, yeah, I was physically and verbally abused my entire childhood. My parent dealt with substance abuse and I was raised in a single parent home. I don't know my father. He's in prison. Right. That's an A score of five right there. Maybe six. So. My own opinion is that a lot of it can stem from trauma. Um, I think that a lot of the work that is, I wasn't a one-on-one -on -one counselor. Um, I wasn't working with clients in that regard. But I do think that in their one-on-one -on -one sessions, those are definitely topics that could have been addressed should the person have brought them up, right? It's pretty delicate to, I took, when I took my ACE test, it was like, could you imagine being handed this 10 question flyer when you walk into the doctor's office that are asking you about your deepest, darkest, scariest shit? And it seems so sterile. 
just like, hey, were you ever molested? How about substance abuse? How about these different things? That can be really scary for people to answer, especially if they've never talked about it. So I think a lot of the work that's done in addiction, um, especially in more holistic programs, is creating a space where people can talk about those things and where clients are held with unconditional positive regard and can tell you their deepest, darkest things that have always either deterred people or they've been told we're going to deter people. And you can sit there and absorb it and look at that person with, you know, in the professional sense, as much love and care as possible. That person's going to finally feel seen for the first time, right? That person's finally found their rat park where they can find purpose and they can find meaning in their life because they've been able to talk about these things. Yeah. And right now we live in a space where we shame fat people and shame people with addiction and uh, put them in prison. And I I think that so much of this comes back to empathy and it comes back to cultural empathy. Like, and, and, and that's shit's, that shit's hard to, you know, keep up when your bike keeps getting stolen by (laughs) the meth head, you know, and you're afraid to let your kid go down the street because there's so many drug addicts. Um, There's a good documentary called the 13th, that uh we we watched, we that watched together yeah, yeah that's great great doc all about uh our prison systems and the history of it and how um all of these tough on crime bills um came through in the 90s really as as a response because um as a response from the democratic party from and from the clintons because they knew that they were getting their asses kicked in every election because being tough on crime was what was winning elections Right, so we started locking people up for anything and everything. We implemented the three strikes law, and as a result, now we have more people incarcerated than anywhere else in the world. Right, we have more people incarcerated under solely drug offenses than the entire EU has in their prison system. Whoa, it's insane, and it's you know, I think that the war on drugs, it's flashy and people want to talk about it and we want to act like we're fighting a war. But the reality is like drugs are in our prisons where you literally have people hired to walk around with their badges and guns and sunglasses to make sure that no fishy business goes on. And there's still drugs in prison. Yeah. Right. Like try to tell me that a border that spans 3000 miles, you're not going to get drugs across if you can get drugs into prison, you know. And and I think that when we talk about, you know, what can we do about the war on drugs and what can we do? People talk about it in a very philosophical sense. Um, Johan Hari actually talks about this a lot, that people all the time are like, how are we ever going to to, you know, get rid of this war on drugs and what what policies can we make? And he's like, there's so many different places that we can look at that we don't have to talk about it philosophically. We can look at what's worked other places. Yeah, well, that comes back to people in America just thinking that we're the fucking best at everything. Absolutely. <laughs> like, no, we're actually not in a lot of ways. Like, you look at our healthcare system, oh, it's like one of the worst in, in of any developed country. Right. Okay? And you want to look at... like. I'm going to tee you up with Portugal. Yeah. Talk about what's happening in other places in the world and what they've implemented. Absolutely. So Portugal, Johanna actually talks about this a lot too, is they were also facing what we see as the war on drugs, right? 
And what they did was decriminalize drugs. And that's not to say that you were like walking down your local Safeway or CVS and could get heroin, right? But they were creating these safe places, safe injection sites. They were decriminalizing it. And what they did was they said, okay, what we're going to do is take all the money that we've spent on our war on drugs, all the money we spend in our prison systems, all of the police power that we use to throw these people in jail and prison. And what we want to do is put that money back into actually helping the addict and actually helping rehabilitate this person. So one of the things they did was if this person, this, you know, this addict, they were working in an automobile shop right before things got bad, they, the country, Portugal would say to this, you know, who's ever automobile shop, hey, hire Joe Schmo. We're actually going to pay half of his salary. So you're getting a huge cut. You're going to basically pay someone half of what you would pay anyone else. And boom, we've restored purpose for this person. And what they did is watch drug use just absolutely fall. They watched their cities flourish Sure. Are people still using drugs? Yes. Will people forever use drugs and alcohol regardless of putting bans on them or not? Yes. But they watched their overdose, uh, their numbers of overdose absolutely decline. They what like the city is so incredibly flourishing now. It's it's insane. Sweden did something similar. Um, Sweden had, I think, in 2000 a really crazy, crazy opiate crisis, like what we're facing now. Um, And what they did was opened safe injection sites. They open really early in the morning. They give you completely medically pure, you can't even call it heroin, basically give you morphine. I was just going to make a bad (laughs) joke of like, no, you need meth sites to open early because those people don't go to sleep. (laughs) Heroin users sleep in. Yeah. So... So open it early. Basically, come use and go to work. And yeah. And what this did was stripped the shame and stigma around heroin use. And what they found was that when the when the clinics opened, there's a tiny, tiny percentage that are, are still there using. Most people would go use what they needed to avoid getting dope sick or whatever it may be and then go to work go do all these things, again, restoring purpose. They watched their, um, oh man, I'm going to mess up these percentages, but they have, since opening that, I don't think they've had a single opiate overdose resulting in death in Sweden. Um, People, again, going back to this restoring purpose, people no longer were hiding it. People were like, yeah, I have a medical condition essentially. And I'm going to use and I'm going to go to work. And all of a sudden they've created this healthy connection with work and their family and these different things. And most people taper it off and don't use. And so it's, you know, these programs are out there. These examples are out there. Um, So much of our societal views are based in shame and stigma and punishment that do nothing except isolate people, right? That do nothing but perpetuate the problem. And we sit here and continue to scratch our heads and say, why, why are we still fighting this war on drugs? You know, it's, it's pretty insane. Sure is. Um, yeah. And it's really a, 
it, you know, this is the most cheesy cliche thing to say ever, but it's like, it really is about choosing love over fear. Right. Right. It's, um, isolation versus community, like heaven and hell. All of that is wrapped up in, you know, really opioids. It's, right. um, have you ever, uh, heard of Sam Quinones? He's mm. a reporter who wrote a book called Dreamland, the true story of America's opioid epidemic. Mm. He's, a fucking G. I listened to a, a podcast that he did with Mark Marin, and he follows the opioid epidemic and how a lot of um, uh, Mexican uh, drug dealers were going into areas in the United States that were not already uh, like established drug zones, right? So you had um, Mexican drug dealers in places like West Virginia, like they you play um, Dayton, Ohio, you know, places where they knew that there was this, a lot of people on Oxy, but there wasn't a lot of drug uh, kind of cartel competition. You know, they weren't going to places like LA or New York, but he tells this very interesting story about how it all happened. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, how a lot of these pill mills in the 90s led to people then hopping to heroin, as you said earlier, that, you know, when people then get cut off um, from from opioids or fr for, from oxy, then they move straight to heroin. Yeah, most often. Yeah. Um, how did you... So you said that you had gotten into CrossFit way earlier than... Yeah, I had started... Because you were a swimmer, right? I was a swimmer for a long time. Um, played a lot of sports. It's easier to list the sports I didn't play mm. than the ones that I did. Um, when I got done with college, it was kind of like, what's next? Um, I was partying a lot. You know, we start talking about that purpose thing. And I was like, oh, I'm going down a path I don't want to go down. Mm. And um, When did you realize that? Probably when I was like 21, 22. Um, not that, you know, I can sit here and justify and and rationalize all my my decisions of oh, I was just doing what a 21 year old does right you know and was partying just as much as the next guy but especially with I lived in a lot of fear for a really long time of like I don't want to end up like my mom I don't want to end up like other members of my family that can't control this um I can't say I've ever had a problem with drugs or alcohol but I just didn't want to give myself especially having been pumped with like the biology argument for so long I just didn't want to give myself that opportunity mm. um, and got introduced to CrossFit in 2013, 2014. Um, and immediately I did my first workout. I think anyone that does CrossFit probably had a similar experience where I absolutely thought I crushed it. Um, ended up like in the corner in the fetal position for like 20 minutes after the workout wondering <laughs> yeah. like what just happened to me yeah. <laughs> I need more of this yeah um, and that's where it started and I started doing it you know five six days a week and got into competing and actually when I was competing got um, really hurt and the first thing that was prescribed to me was 80 Norco and Thankfully, I took one and I was like, ew, I don't like the way it makes me feel and just never did it again, but could easily see um, just how readily available it was. It was really funny. They gave me this prescription for this pill that makes me feel like I'm on another planet, like can't even tie my own shoes, right, when I'm when I'm on it. Thankfully, opiates, I guess, aren't my thing, but um, paired with a laundry list of like, if you feel numbness, pins and needles, tingling, like 
tell your doctor, right? You have nerve damage. And I'm like, fuck, man. I don't even know what planet yeah. I'm on. And you want me to tell you if my fingers are numb? Like, you're crazy. Yeah. Um, and so I think that paired with wanting to learn more about addiction in the first place and then also having something stripped from me that felt very much like my own identity being stripped. Like, I... Injuring your elbow. Right. Um, I came up in the CrossFit coaching space and there wasn't a lot of females doing it. Um, there's a lot more now. It's really awesome. Um, but there was a lot of times where I was like, I have to carry myself around this gym. Like I know everything. Like I train four hours a day. Like, you know, I'm everything that there could ever be about CrossFit because then you won't question me. And now all of a sudden doing what I love competing, I've hurt myself and now I can't coach. Now I can't work out. I can't do all these things. Of course, if maybe if opiates made me feel better than they did, they didn't make me super sick. That's like teeing me up for an addiction. Right. Right. Lose your purpose and absolutely want to feel good immediately. Absolutely. So I completely sympathize with it. And having gone through that experience, I can now I feel like I meet a lot of athletes in a different way. Instead of saying like, I'm the coach, like having this huge power dynamic, I'm the coach, you're the athlete, you're going to do what I say or whatever it might be. It's again, meeting that person where they are. Um, I don't even like saying we're going to scale or modify a workout because I remember how terrifying that was for me to go in and be like, oh, Lindsay, just keep coming to the gym and scale it. And I'm like, fuck you. I'm not a scaled athlete. Like, what does that I, mean? It just means like modifying the weight or. I'm not a scaled athlete. <laughs> yeah. Like, fuck you guys. Like, I taught you how to do this movement. Don't tell me I need to scale it. If I didn't have this robo arm on, I could totally do it, you know? And so just even the way I talk to people now, the way that I approach an injured athlete, it's like, I know it took all of your being to come here today. So thank you. Like, thank you for showing up. Now let's do something that you can do without pain. Just even saying it like that. And so like, we're going to modify it and we're going to change it because you're different. You know, now it's like, you're included. Thank you for being here. Mm. Have you uh, experimented with psychedelics? Um, a little bit. Um, not a whole two tons, but yeah, a little bit, which was a very, um, a very weird thing for me to come to, uh, especially because I had had so much stigma around it. Right. I remember as a kid and even into my like early adulthood was like, oh my gosh, you know, like weed is All these damn hippies with the charged (laughs) crystals and their fucking turmeric and the magic mushrooms. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, it was really... And a lot of this could probably be the podcast culture where I just started learning about these things, not through the lens of having a war on drugs that, yeah, I have experimented a little bit. Not, I'm not as versed as, as some other people you've probably had on the show, but yeah. Um, well, I only asked because we were talking about identity and I think that psychedelics can be very helpful in regards to giving yourself a moment of, of seeing your, yourself and your ego from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I am not a only a crossfitter. I my all of my value is not wrapped up in this. I, I and I think that um, you, you know it's it's really easy for our identities to become ossified in one thing or another. And one of the big values of psychedelics can be to, for a brief moment, allow you to see yourself in a different light, which gives you freedom to move laterally. You know, it gives you the freedom to then take that dance lesson that you never gave yourself permission to take. You know, I think that, um, 
I've seen a lot of people make those big lateral jumps and, and progress more in life when they feel stuck through, um, as you said, you know, a, a psychedelic experience where there are, is a good mindset going into it and a good setting. Because obviously people can abuse psychedelics Absolutely. as well. Um, they're, they're not in the same way that um, people abuse opioids because I do think that they're fundamentally help help people reflect and move deeper than if that's, numb out. If that's the, the goal. If that's what they're going for. Right. Yes. If they're like, hey, I just want to go like wonder what the sunset tastes like and trip out on the beach a little bit. That's a different container than yeah. I want to go in and like look at my shit. And I think that, you know, psychedelics aside or anything else, anytime you're willing to look at yourself and know, right, all of us walk through life with our own worldview, with our own lens. And the only way that we're able to look through that lens is because of all of the experiences that we've lived up until that point. I think that what psychedelics does or good therapy or anytime you can really achieve like a flow state for some people that is, you know, working out for some people, it could be surfing any of these things. It allows you to to reflect and do so from a space of, again, curiosity and of non-judgment. Yeah. But then doing the work also, that's that's such an important aspect to it as well, which I commend you on doing because you're not, um, you don't just get the realization or the lesson and then sign up for the next seminar, which I think is a real trap that a lot of people can fall into. Um, it's like, I'm more woke than you, bro. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> oh, it's the, um, what's that? What's the quote? Uh, I think it was a... Um, it's like a Ram Dass quote or one, one of those old psychedelic explorers. Oh, I think it was Tim Leary. When you get the message, hang up the phone. Yeah. Right. And I, I feel that tremendously. I've had a bunch of psychedelic experiences, but now like the, the idea of going on a big, you know, ayahuasca trip, I'm like, yeah, I kind of know the stuff I need to work on and learn. And I'm, I'm in this realm now. Uh, and that's going to take me showing up. It's going to take repetition. It's going to take more of that kind of pragmatic grinded out mindset than it will, uh, just having another mind blowing experience and, you know, going to the moon. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's its own form of spiritual bypassing because people can totally sit and say like, oh, I've done this many ayahuasca experiences and I've done this and I've done that. And it's like, okay, cool. Well, what have you done to implement any of that change? Right. Yeah. But you still don't know how to, you know, send a good email. Right. Like you're not woke. (laughs) You're just an asshole that goes and drinks jungle juice sometimes. Or you're doing your, or you're, you know, doing your thing, but you're, you're avoiding the, the grind of becoming good and competent at something. And I think that that's, uh, it's particularly pernicious in, uh, woke hippie culture. Like that people think that just because they had the insight that they're there already. No, you're not because you need to wake up at early in the morning and learn how to, you know, write fiction or do CrossFit. Like, and that's, that's a lot less sexy, but, um, I think it's, it's tremendously important. I, I just read a book called the art of war. Have Mm -hmm. you heard of this? Mm -hmm. Such a good book. And it's, it's all about, um, doing art and resistance to that art and the amount of resistance that comes into our lives in the form of distraction. This can be resistance in the form of, sex 
like sex is a great distraction because it validates you immediately and makes you feel good. So does Instagram. So does Instagram. So does eating some sugary food. So does really um, a lot of things that we don't identify, right? And um, he was talking about the author. He opens by saying, you know, I, I wake up, I open my computer, I put on my lucky shirt, I have my lucky rock next to my shirt. (laughs) I start writing. I write for two to four hours. I then notice at a certain point that I am making um, grammar errors. So I'm getting diminishing returns. I don't know any if any, I don't know if what I wrote was good. I don't know if I'll ever use it. Maybe I'll just throw it away. I stop and then I start doing dishes and I notice that I'm whistling. Like, I am okay now. Like, I've done that work, and it wasn't magical, but I'm okay because I did it. Absolutely. I mean, there's a handful of things that come up for me. Like, one is the power of routine. And that was one thing that when I first started really studying addiction and and psychotherapy as a whole was I took an addiction course, and they asked us to give something up. Right. If we're one day going to ask a client not to use drugs or alcohol, we should probably know what it's like to not use something. Right. She was like, well, don't drink alcohol. And I was like, I can count on my fingers how many times I drink a year. You know, she's like, "Okay, well, how about nicotine? I was like, "Mm, not my jam either. She goes, well, how about caffeine? And I just felt my stomach fall out my asshole. (laughs) And I was like, oh, Oh, no, that's it. I've had that happen to me before. It was in Indonesia. (laughs) Yeah. I had some fishy rice. It didn't go well. (laughs) Yeah, similar experience. Um, And so I gave up caffeine, and it was horrible. I, like, got terrible headaches. I had flu-like symptoms for probably close to three weeks, and it was just all I could do not to, you know, maybe cold turkey wasn't exactly the best idea, but I did it, right? Um, and what I noticed was once I got over just like the craving for caffeine and that quick afternoon pick me up and make everything, you know, make the pain go away. I think that there's a lot of learning and a lot of growing that happens in pain and we can get to that later. But I missed my morning routine. I missed waking up and putting, you know, grinding my beans and putting them in my French press and the smell that would, you know, take over my kitchen and, sitting down and having a cup of coffee with a friend. Like I missed all of that so much. The immediate poop that would commence after. Yes. The glorious poops. The glorious coffee poops. Um, I missed those too. Yeah. It was crazy. But, um, it was, it was one of those things that like, you know, the example you gave of waking up and opening your computer and having your lucky rock and having this set and setting, you know, we can have healthy and we can have unhealthy routines. And I think that what fitness or any other sort of avenue that restores purpose in your life is it starts creating these new routines and it starts creating these healthy habits that you can use. And I think that's a really big part of, you know, facing addiction and facing what we're looking at right now. Yeah. Have you read The Power of Habit? No. It's a good book. I highly recommend it. For for you listeners, I am relatively well read. I just haven't read any book that Kyle has <laughs> thrown is, my way. <laughs> no, I, I, I can tell. You know what you're talking about. The Power of Habit is good because it's stories about habit and how our habits 
shape us and become us. And there's a, a story about um, how I believe it was in the 1950s, um, no Americans were brushing their teeth very low amount, and to the point where it became um, like it was like a Surgeon General's. <laughs> Warning! It was a high priority for the government to get us to brush our teeth. Um, so we were coming up with all these scientists were coming up with all these tricks and tips to get people to start brushing their teeth one way or another. And the one that stuck was um, a marketer who learned that if you make toothpaste sudsy, it feels better in our mouths. But suds don't make our teeth any cleaner. Right. It's just this good feeling for us, right? Like, oh, yeah, I want to scrape it out and spit. And it gets all <laughs> foamy in there. So when they, they started using sudsy toothpaste, people started brushing their teeth in mass numbers. And it's just one story after the next about the power of habit. You know, when you wake up in the morning and you put on your shoes and you drive out your driveway and you go to work, a lot of times you don't even remember that Right. That commute because you've done it a million times and a different part of your brain is working. It's well, you're not, on like autopilot. You're on autopilot. Your brain's saving its energy. So as much as you can create habits that allow you to um, beat the day and allow you to stack the deck in your favor, um, I think the the better. And it's it's a then it, it also helps you create systems in your life rather than make these audacious goals that you will achieve and then fall off right after. Absolutely. I think that there's long-term and short-term goals have such a big impact on us. And I don't get me wrong. I think long-term goals are great. We see them a lot with fitness, right? I want to lose 50 pounds or I want to bench press 300 pounds, whatever it is. Those are great. But before you lose 50, you have to lose 10. Before you lose 10, you have to lose five, right? And so many times I think that setting these really big goals can take us so out of the moment and so away from our own mindfulness that now we've lost, the only time we have power to do anything is right now, right? And I've pulled myself so far out of now, future tripping about six months from now, that I'm not now taking the steps that I need to do to ever get there. Mm. Um, so I think that that's, that's really big, especially with the habit forming. What do you think are some of the most powerful habits you've, you've developed? You're a very impressive person to me. Thank you. Yeah, in, in the way that you, you are very clear on what you want to do and you go out and you do it. Yeah, I mean, wow. You, yeah, it's, you. it's pretty cool. Like you, you really um, are, are, you're going places. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that some of them are just what I've done to restore my connection, um, like really true authentic connection. They're, you know, I'm not going to say that I'm above Instagram or any of these things, but there's, um, I keep bringing them up. Um, Johan talks about junk values, right? And so often we get stuck in Instagram validation and the quick fix of these things, right? Like I could stop at Whole Foods and like make myself a salad or I'll just like grab this candy bar at the gas station because it's easy, right? We're like, a lot of times are filling ourselves with these junk values. And so I think that when I was kind of forming my daily routine, um, I started really sitting down about like, what are, what are my values and how can I stack my day to align with them? Because when I'm acting in alignment with my values, I feel good about myself. And so some of it was, I think of my day as having bookends so I can set myself up for success in the morning 
and all hell can break loose during the day, whatever it might be. Who cares? I get home. My bed's made. I feel good about it, right? I had one success this morning, and that's because making my bed was part of my morning routine. And now this evening, I'm going to reflect and and be able to say, okay, what, what might I have been able to do better? Mm. Or, okay, that didn't go so well today. What could I do tomorrow? What can I plan for tomorrow that's going to help that be a little bit more effective? What does reflection look like? Um, journaling is a big one for Journal me. Journal every day? I do, yeah. In the night? Evening time? Yeah, I try. If I if I had it my way, I journal in the morning and in the evening. But reflection has been a really big one for me. So I think that um, my evening journaling practice is is a lot more consistent than my morning. Um. So so that's definitely been been a big one for me. I think a lot of it too has been trying to stay off my phone as much as possible. Um. I try not to look at it for at least an hour before I go to bed at night. And I try not to look at it for the first two hours in the morning. Um, I put my phone on airplane mode and I set my alarm so that when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I don't see is email notifications. I don't start my morning turning off my alarm and immediately filling my brain with all the stuff I have to do, right? Because then I'm living in the shoulds immediately. Um, So I try to wake up, have my morning routine, get up, shower, stretch, don't really have a cup of coffee anymore, but I do have a cup of mud water. So thanks. Uh, thanks shameless, Shane. shameless plug. Thanks for your sponsor. Um, and, and get clear and feel good, whether that's reading an article or listening to a podcast or doing something where now I've fed my brain with something that's not a junk value and then turn my phone off airplane mode and, and the messages can come in. You meditate? I do. Every morning? I would like to say yes, but yeah, no. But not yeah. But no. Um, For how I, long? Not too long. Twenty yeah, minutes. Twenty minutes. And yeah. you do that on your own with no. Uh, no, I use Headspace. Use Headspace. Yeah. So you do that with your phone. Uh, yeah. How do you do that while it's on airplane mode? Mm, I don't know. I've never tried. I. You can download the packages. Wait, but oh, oh, so so you, you do it while your phone's on airplane mode? Because this is my uh, problem. I use Sam Harris's. Uh, one waking up it's fucking awesome but I need to download I I use the daily one and then that my text messages start flowing in oh right? I use do not disturb use do not disturb okay yeah so that way you're still like can be on your wi-fi networks or whatever right but, but the text like, messages are still coming in but they're just not like pinging mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. yeah I, I, I want I need to figure out a new way to do that Cause that's my issue. Cause then I, li- I listen. I'm like, oh yeah, look at all these text messages yeah. right after. Damn it! Damn it! Yeah, it's um, <laughs> I was talking to a buddy of mine recently. We were down in uh, Big Sur camping, and he had um, Todd. He had he had this great um point where he's like, you know, people always say like, oh, I'm into this. Like, yeah, I'm pretty into meditation, or oh yeah, I'm into to surfing, or I'm into spearfishing, and he's like. But how often do you actually do it? Like if you were to audit your day and be a really honest auditor about it, like that's actually what you value. Like if you're like, oh, I'm a family man. Yeah, I love, you know, spending time with my kids. When you're like, wait, no, you're gone all the time. That's how you spend your time is actually what you value. And most of us, myself included, are not very honest about that because it's way easier to say that you do something and you get that little ping of like, yeah, I do that all the time. And you're like, wait, when was the last time I actually, you know, 
fill in the blank fill in the blank yeah absolutely I, and one thing that's been really helpful for me there is um less of saying that I do something and and realizing that I don't but how often I won't do something because I'll have some sort of excuse I'm too busy or oh I've got this going on and substituting it with that's not a priority so when someone you know maybe it's meal prepping right like eating eating healthy Instead of being like, oh, I didn't have time to like prep my meal today. If I change my vocabulary to eating well isn't a priority, that immediately registers for me like, wait, it should be, you know, and it can really reframe the way I think about Whoa, things. Oh, that's a good one. I like that. You're welcome. You can take it. Yeah. Use Where'd it. you learn that? Oh, I th- some glorious podcast along the way. Some glorious podcast. I want to say it was um, Adi Cashew. She owns Working Against Gravity. It's a nutrition company, and w- which is really awesome. Um, any of you guys looking for nutrition stuff, Working Against Gravity is great. They have a whole like mindfulness component to it, and so uh, saying it's not a priority also brings it, it brings you agency, right? 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 My decision. My Shit. decision. Ah, it's so much easier to blame people. <laughs> Damn it! Damn it. I love living if in only the victim that worked. role. If only that worked. Yeah. These are such nuanced and important conversations to have, though. Um, And I think podcasting is the perfect medium to have them because obviously environmental factors are a huge um, impact. Environmental factors impact our decisions. So we want to set up environmental uh, factors that set us up for success on a, a societal level and on a personal level. But for our own mental state taking back as much energy as as much agency as possible is what we need to do right here here there we have it there we have it (laughs) anything else i think that's good is that good yeah how do you feel about it yeah this was awesome yeah you're you're seriously impressive um where can people get in touch with you um i am on instagram at lindsay taylor lock all one word um that's kind of it i'm not not a big online presence. Um, yeah, I guess that's kind of what. Do you, what are what? What's the big goal now, or, or big kind of dream? Do you has that shifted at all from uh, having your own addiction center? What does that look like for you? Where Where would you like to be? Yeah, so I am going to be finishing my degree. Like I said earlier, I'm getting my master's in counseling psychology. So after finishing that degree in the next year and a half or so, and getting all the clinical hours I need. Um, I would love, I, the goal used to be like, I want a rehab center, but I don't think that's the goal anymore. Um, I think a lot of it is just to have a a health center, I guess, for lack of a better word, where I can have a private practice attached to it. I think that the, the mind and body are, are so interconnected. We can talk about that maybe next time. Um, that allowing, you know, so often, a therapist will refer you to, oh, you should try this or you should do yoga or you should do these things. But actually like making these things available to people, you know, like you can give people homework, but how likely are they going to do it? Unless they've told themselves that's not a priority and it registered for them like, oh, it should be right. We can talk about all these different things, but having a center where all of that stuff is available. So having, you know, my private practice attached to 
a yoga studio and a functional fitness training center and having float tanks and saunas and and these different wellness modalities that people don't always use and and having one place where you could either maybe you don't want therapy do i think everyone should use therapy yes if you're not seeing a therapist find one find a friend find somebody right um but people could come and just have like a monthly membership and I want a cold plunge and I want to do breath work tonight and I'm going to sit in the sauna afterwards. Cool. Like here's your monthly membership. And it would also give any of my private clients the chance to utilize all of those things. I can't wait to get a membership. <laughs> give me a few years, but that's the goal. Right on, Lindsay. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's our show. I put a link to Lindsay's Instagram in the link below if you want to reach out to her, tell her you enjoyed the episode, have any extra questions. I'm going to play you out with a song called Yes Man by Sourgrass, and I will link to their band page in the show notes below. Once again, I rely on listeners like you to keep this podcast going. So if you can donate even just five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, whatever you feel comfortable with, head over to Patreon. You can go to my website, kyle.surf, and click the link there. I also do a weekly email, uh, so if you would like to get a short story from me every Friday, you can go over to my website, kyle.surf, and sign up for that. If you don't, just keep listening. Keep enjoying the show. Keep being a good person. Go out there and give some high fives and share the podcast. Uh, And most importantly, go get some exercise because you all know how important that is. All right. See you guys soon. Ciao. Just though you took some turns from where you started